This week, we talk about a place with layers of history and home to a critical moment in the life and ministry of none other than Jesus himself. Join us as we take a journey to Caesarea Philippi. Welcome to the Shalom Y'all Ministries podcast. I'm your co-host, Adam Keim, along with my great friend, Dr. Daniel McCabe. Daniel, how are you doing these days? I'm doing good. I just got to thinking about that, and I realized our mascot, Ernie, our dog, our mascot for Shalom Y'all Ministries, he's about to turn 11 uh, in four years, and um, the fair's coming to town, and I'm in the middle of a couple good books, and here I am getting to talk about the things of the Lord with you, so I'm doing just fine. Nothing better than that. Well, we here at Shalom Y'all assure you that a walk through the land deepens your walk with the Lord. And our mission, of course, is to teach and encourage those who love the Bible, the land of the Bible, and the people of the land. Now, have you ever wanted to make a visit to the Holy Land yourself? Well, the opportunity is yours if you reach out for more information on how you or your group can see Israel with your own two eyes and have an experience that you will never forget. Now, as always, we begin with a couple of mini-topics before getting into our main subject of Caesarea Philippi. Daniel, what do you have for us today? Well, I've got a little bit of a devotional. You know, the well-known Danish philosopher, I know you have enjoyed philosophy in the past, but mm-hmm. so you'll recognize this name, Soren Kierkegaard. Yep. Well, he tells a wonderful parable that uh, I thought that maybe you and our listeners might enjoy. And it goes like this. A wild duck was flying in the springtime northward across Europe. During the flight, he came down in a Danish barnyard where there were tame ducks. He enjoyed some of their corn. He stayed for an hour. Then for a day. Then for a week. Then for a month. And... Finally, because he relished the good food and the safety of the barnyard, he decided to stay all summer. But one autumn day, when the flock of wild ducks were winging their way southward again, they passed over the barnyard, and their friend heard their cries. He was stirred with a strange thrill of joy and delight, and with a great flapping of his wings, he rose in the air to join his old comrades in their flight. But he found that his good food had made him so soft and heavy that he could rise no higher than the eaves of the barn. So he dropped back again to the barnyard and said to himself, Oh, well, my life is safe here, and the food is good. Every spring and autumn, when he heard the wild ducks honking, his eyes would gleam for a moment, and he would begin to flap his wings, But finally the day came when the wild ducks flew over him and uttered their cry, but he paid not the slightest attention to them. Great story, and it reminds me that it's so easy to fall into a life of ease and forget the glories of flying high. And for some of us, this might mean that we've forgotten what it was like in the exciting months and years after we first got saved, and now we're just merely on cruise control. That can happen. For others, it may mean that you're overwhelmed by life and you aren't even trying anymore to rise above your circumstances. You've really just grown tired and complacent. You used to read your Bible every day. 
and you say, well, I'll start again tomorrow. You're letting your children talk back more lately than they ever have. And you say, well, I'm just so tired to do anything about it right now. It's been a really long day. Or you find yourself watching things on television that you know you shouldn't. And you say to yourself and try to convince yourself, it doesn't really matter. It's not, it doesn't really affect me. It goes in one ear and out the other. Well, do you remember this verse? You know, I've shared it before, but once again, it's been tugging at my heart. So I wanted to share it with you again. It says, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles or even ducks. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So look to the Lord. He can lift you from your barnyard, wherever you are today. Look to him. Hmm. Now, Daniel, this week marks our 24th episode of the podcast. Can you believe that? Yeah, that's great. It's hard to believe, but that's great. We need a marching band or something. Thanks. All right. Well, I'll I'll get one scheduled for the next okay. episode, maybe. <laughs> but do you know why twenty four is such a special number? No, not really. Well, think back to math class. It's because it's made up of two twelves, of course. Oh, oh well, of course. Yeah. And do you know why two twelves <laughs> is such a special set? Uh, because they're two pairs of six. Ah, uh, well, you know, you could go down that route, Daniel. Yeah. But it's. 12 tribes of Israel and 12 apostles. Okay. I'll all go right. with that. So, all right. But is it 12 each? Well, let's think about the 12 tribes first. Think Old Testament. As you know, each of Jacob's sons was the father of a tribe, and they all received their tribal allotments in the promised land. Now, we're going to think about the land of Israel here in the 12 tribes. They all received their allotments except, of course, for Levi. And the Levites were spread throughout the land, and they had their own cities in every tribe. So that leaves us with 11. But Joseph is not one of the tribes. So that brings us down to 10. But he was represented by his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So that brings us back up to 12. So if you think about Ephraim and Manasseh, with Levi and the other 10, you have 13 tribes. Now, if you think about the land again, and if you consider Simeon scattered among the cities within Judah's territory, you kind of only have 11 defined areas. But Manasseh has two separate areas, one on each side of the Jordan River. So we're back up to 12. So I don't know, I'm doing some fuzzy creative math here. But <laughs> So we have more or less 12 tribal allotments in the land. Okay, so, so 12 tribes. Okay, I'm relieved. That's good. Good. All right. Now let's look at the apostles. 12, right? Well, okay, we have to remove Judas Iscariot, of course, which brings us down to 11. But Matthias was chosen to replace him, which brings us back up to 12. So 12 apostles. But what about Paul? Now, certainly he would then make 13. Well, Paul seems to call James, the brother of Jesus, an apostle in Galatians 1.16, which would make it 14 apostles. Now, he also possibly refers to Silvanus and Timothy as apostles in 1 Thessalonians 2, 6, making it 16 apostles. Maybe even Epaphroditus in Philippians 2, 25, bringing us to 17. Well, the Greek word apostolos is sometimes translated as messenger, because really an apostle was a sent one, a messenger. So 
it can be tricky to categorize others as apostles or not. Some lists go that I've seen as high as 25 apostles mentioned in the New Testament, but I would contend against some of them. It depends on how you define apostle, really. But at any rate, I think we made it past 12. So I guess we just might have to revisit this whole matter around episode 38 or something like that. What do you think? Well, I'm for that. I, I don't know what it is about you and I, but I, I, I think that we are somehow related. I, I don't know what else to conclude <laughs> because I mean, I remember years ago I was sitting in my bedroom one night late at night when I was living back in Louisiana and my wife was sound asleep and I was determined I was going to find out how many apostles there were in yes. when I pulled out my little notebook and <laughs> I did just exactly what you just did. I think that's fascinating. I don't know. I love it, but um, I'm game for anything. All right. Well, Daniel, what is this week's trivia question? Oh, okay. Well, today I'm going to handle things a bit differently. So right. today I'll actually ask and answer the trivia question for you. Oh, okay. But I'll need you, Adam, and our listeners to recall where in the Bible we can turn to find the answers to my question mm. and the answers. Okay, you ready? I think so. All right, so think about this one. Uh, here's the question. It was actually submitted by John Garrison. John asks, how many times does the Bible refer to God writing? Writing. Hmm. Well, the answer, John says, is four times. Four times in the Bible does it refer to God writing. Now, can you remember the four Bible passages where it refers to him writing? I thought this was a tough enough question on the surface, but I'll put a little pressure on you and our listeners just for fun, because I asked my wife this question, who I'm pretty sure is the smartest person on the face of the planet, mm -hmm. and it took her all of seven, maybe eight seconds to rattle them off. It's just crazy. <laughs> she did that. Yeah, I know. So, well, anyway, think that one over. You, you got it, right, Adam? You thinking uh, it? Well, your wife is going to put me to shame. Okay. I well, to you that. <laughs> but you understand my question, right? I think so. Yep. Okay. We'll think that one over and then we'll have the answer for you later in the podcast. Well, Daniel, this week our focus is on Caesarea Philippi. Now, many Christians have a deep affinity for it, even though only one event in scripture happens there. Now, on my past trips to Israel, several people have asked me, we are going to Caesarea Philippi, right? Well, let's talk about why this is such a special place. Ah, Caesarea Philippi. Well, one of the reasons is because it's an absolutely stunning place to visit. But it does come with a haunting and a troubled past, which I'm going to touch on here shortly. But when you visit Caesarea Philippi, you're surrounded by freshwater springs, and unspoiled nature. And it's far from the crowded beaches of Tel Aviv or hawkers with their trinkets in Jerusalem's old city. You're not elbow to elbow with folks. You're really amongst God's creation. It's a place where you might want to pull out your journal, find a shade tree, or sip on a bottle of green tea. You might even be tempted to pull off your shoes and dip your feet in the cool mountain-fed streams or stretch out on the grass and try a nap. There's a 
picturesque waterfall. There's hiking trails and verdant hills all around you, although they probably still hide a few spent shells in their dark soil, sobering reminders of the battle for this scenic region during the Six-Day War of 1967. It's probably no surprise to you after I describe the beauty of this place, then that many armies have fought over it, including the Greeks, the Romans, the Crusaders, and the Arabs. One of the three sources for the headwaters of the Jordan River, Banyas, as it's called today, is now a nature reserve at the foot of snow-capped Mount Hermon, and it's arguably one of the most gorgeous places in all Israel. Banyas is a corruption of Panaeus, meaning a place sacred to Pan, the god of nature, forests, and and flocks. For long ago, the Greeks built a temple at this site after discovering a cave at the base of a rocky red cliff from which bubbled up a refreshing spring. Because of seismic activity, the water still flows today, but now from a crack beneath the cave. Well, in 20 BC, then under Roman control, Caesar Augustus gifted Banyas to King Herod, who built a white marble temple near the cave in spring in honor of his benefactor. And then Herod's son, Philip, later built the capital of his territory on this spot in 2 BC and called it Caesarea, which is why most Christians know it best by its Roman and biblical name, Caesarea Philippi. Well, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, so says Matthew 16, 13, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Jesus's question asked near the shrines and temples of Caesarea Philippi really just jumps off the pages of scripture at us, for there are many past and even present rivals to the name of Jesus, particularly in this place. And so Jesus's question really requires an answer. Who do we say that Jesus is? Is he one among many good prophets like Elijah or Jeremiah? Is he one of many gods like Pan? Or is he God alone? For myself, I will never hesitate to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. But the long history of the site belies that truth because the Greeks and Romans, they first sacrificed to their gods in this place. Herod Philip largely worshipped power and debauchery from its majestic heights. And next, following Roman Emperor Constantine's conversion to Christianity, a large church dominated this site in honor of the healing of the woman with the flow of blood recorded in Mark 5 that the Byzantine Christians believed took place there. The anti-Christian emperor Flavius Julian would soon desecrate the Christian site by erecting a statue to himself, and centuries later, Muslim conquerors quickly leveled the church to erect a mosque. Crusaders then arrived and restored the site to its earlier Christian focus, but soon they too lost their foothold once again to Arab Muslims. Remnants of an 11th century Jewish synagogue can still be seen among the layers of competing history there, but today this site is a nationally governed nature reserve with 
really no signs of active faith. It's entirely secular now. The site has gone cold, even though it's beautiful. But you can see that there has been a parade of competing faiths at this site. Yet looking around at the unmistakable landscape, the gorgeous sights all around you, surrounds the visitor on every side, every hill, just speaks more of majesty and beauty than the next, you can still hear the ringing words of Peter's reply to Jesus's question in Matthew 16, 16, when Peter answered resolutely, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Hmm. to which I can only say, amen and amen. And amen. Now, thinking about Peter's words there, I will discuss the important events that took place near Caesarea Philippi, which, I mean, really is what makes that location special in the hearts and minds of Christians in the first place. Now, towards towards the end of Jesus's public ministry, he, he took his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, a place that Jews did not frequent because, well, it was basically a party zone for the Romans. But Jesus could get away from the crowds there and truly reveal himself as the Messiah to the disciples. It was very important when Jesus asked them who the people thought that he was. Some said John the Baptist, some said Elijah, and others said, well, one of the prophets. As you mentioned, Peter responded wonderfully and said that Jesus was the Christ, that is, the Messiah. In keeping with Mark's theme... Mark, the gospel writer, his theme of messianic hiddenness, which you can read about in my current Gospel of Mark series and the weekly email on the Facebook page, Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. That might seem weird for a Christian. Well, Jesus, why wouldn't you want your disciples to evangelize? Well, that is, he did not want the disciples to make an overt official claim of messiahship because it was not yet time for Rome to take custody of him. You see, no one under the Roman Empire could make a claim like that and live to tell about it, and it wasn't Jesus's time yet, because in Rome there is no king but Caesar. Now, the empire allowed the Herods to act as client kings in Judea, but that's a long story for another day. Anyway, Jesus began talking about how it was necessary for him to die something that stunned the disciples because they were getting ready for the kingdom to be restored physically to Israel. And how could that happen if the king was to be killed? And they obviously did not understand yet of the church age that was to intervene first, the age that we are in this day as we speak. And kind of a a side note, Daniel, you Mm -hmm. know, the disciples were right to be excited for that kingdom to come. I think it's a bit of a misunderstanding when a lot of people say, well, the disciples were wrong to to seek a kingdom and and actually Jesus had to change their minds. No, that was actually a very good desire. They should have been looking forward to the kingdom. The problem was that's all they were looking forward to. And a lot of people in Jesus's day had a big problem when, Oh, by the way, they had to repent of their sins and humble themselves before God. That was a bridge too far for so many people. (laughs) But anyway, um, the power of that kingdom would at least be shown to people soon after 
Peter's confession of Jesus as Messiah, those people being a few of the disciples. Now, that would happen with the important event that happened so very close to Caesarea Philippi upon Mount Hermon. Now, can you guess, dear listener, what that event was? It was none other than the transfiguration, when the king was shown in his power. Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to the mountain, and you can read about that in Matthew 17 and Luke 9 and Mark 9. So let's read Mark 9, verses 2 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. I think that's Mount Hermon. Some people think it's Mount Tabor. And there's um, there's a church on top of Mount Tabor in the Jezreel Valley that commemorate this. But I think the transfiguration took place near Caesarea Philippi up on Mount Hermon. Anyway, he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, or tabernacles, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Now, Peter was right to be excited, and he wanted to keep Moses and Elijah there with them. That was his way of saying, hey, let's get the kingdom going. The representatives of the law and the prophets are here, and and they are witnesses to you, Lord. But remember, it was necessary for Jesus first to die. You see, if Jesus did not die, there would basically be an empty kingdom, for no one would have their sins forgiven to enter it at all. And another side note, how everyone fits in the kingdom, both glorified individuals and not-yet-dead people alike, is also another long story for another day. But Jesus charged the disciples to keep the matter to themselves until he rose from the dead. Now, their confusion was very evident because they wondered what he even meant by rising from the dead. And it it turns out that he quite literally meant rising from physical death. Now, the king dying when the kingdom was so close was something that they could not comprehend. After all, Paul described the kingdom as the mystery in Ephesians 3 and Colossians 1, which means the as yet unrevealed plan of God to unite Jew and Gentile into one body, a unique people of God as the body of Christ on earth. That is the church. And Daniel, you and I are members of that body. And I do hope that our listeners are part of that body as well. And it's important that we are the, you know, called the body of Christ, because with Jesus having resurrected and ascending back to heaven, he still is present per se on earth in his body. That's us, the church. Now, the invitation from God is to anyone and everyone to be baptized into the body of Christ through the remission of their sins. One of the very many great verses that summarize the gospel pretty well. Let's consider Romans 5, verses 8 and 11. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
in verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now that is reconciliation to our Creator through the sacrifice of Jesus, who will come again someday to inaugurate that kingdom of God and to rule with justice and peace. Romans 5 8, it's a great verse. I've been teaching that to my boys. In fact, we've been going over the gospel the last couple of weeks. I've been trying to teach all three of my boys how to share the gospel. They both understand that they've committed their lives to Christ, but we're using, among so many verses you could pick from, we're using Romans 5 8 to emphasize that Christ died for us. And we've also used some other classic verses as well, but it's something that I want everybody to understand, certainly my own children, but anyone who's listening. There's not a more powerful message on earth and in heaven than that Christ died for us. And we can rejoice in God through Jesus, as you just uh, as you just read the follow-up verse as well in verse 11. So amen. Thank you, Adam. I really appreciate that. submitted by my friend John. He asks, how many times does the Bible refer to God writing? And and I told you the answer, it's four. So now I get to do what I get to do every time we meet, Adams. I get to put you on the spot and you're such a good mm. sport about it. But how many of the four Bible references can you list of God writing? Okay, I think I can think of... Well, at least three, and then okay. maybe another. We'll see if if they qualify. My other ideas that I <laughs> okay <laughs> chapter and verse specifically. Uh, I don't I'll know about that. Um, but one of the places, you know, God wrote the law on the tablets that He gave to Moses. Good. Yeah, that's he, Exodus thirty-one eighteen. It says that the Lord gave Moses two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Good. Excellent. All right. So I got one of them. Yes. Another one is in Daniel 5, I believe. Um, Daniel 5, 24. Yep. Many, many tekeluparsin. Well, I'm I'm quoting a different verse there, but I got you. Okay. Yep. And I I can't remember specifically if it says God's finger or just Daniel saw a hand writing. We know it was, you know, well, God, that's but. that's a great point that you made. In fact, this was one of the four answers to the question that was given to me by John. And when I looked at it, I went, wait, does it actually say God? And it doesn't right there. But if you keep reading down in verse 24, which is the verse that I mentioned to you a minute ago, it says the fingers of the hand were sent from, yeah. and then by implication, God. Sure. So I think we can safely go with that that god wrote but i get you i get you yeah all right so we'll count it yeah um jesus wrote on the ground with his finger and jesus is god of course so that has to count right in john 8 yes in fact my my wife got these first three and then she turned to me and she said wait jesus is god right he counts too doesn't he i said yeah better and then (laughs) right right and then she's just trying to make sure i was right you know, yeah. so yes, it says God wrote on the ground. Um, if we can obviously refer to Jesus safely as God, and we mm-hmm. can, it says he stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, John 8, 6. Yeah. 
Now the other ones, I don't, I, I have, to, I don't even know if they technically qualify. But um, okay, well, when Jesus comes back, uh, I think Revelation nineteen, there's a name written on this thigh. You know, I, but I, I don't think it specifically says God wrote that. But I, I don't know. There, there's a name written, but also just the concept of maybe God writing the law on our hearts. I can't give you. Okay. Numbers. Those are actually pretty good. And so maybe those, those are honorable mentions or maybe we need to even add them to our list, but that's not the fourth one that I had, but those are good. In fact, I was just reading that same passage uh, last night. I think it was where it talks about in revelation, how, you know, we're going to be given a new name. Right. Mm-hmm. So good, good job. Um, but not the one I had. So maybe this is turning out to be a, uh, guess what the teacher's thinking. <laughs> okay. You want to give another shot or that's all you got? Uh, I'll, I'll just stick with three that I've gotten. I've gotten three out of four. Correct. And maybe two honorable mentions. I'll take that as a victory. What's oh, the fourth? Did, yeah. I answer? think that's really good. I, <laughs> as I think I've said to you before uh, on air, but it's like, I, I'm glad you don't ask me these questions because <laughs> I wouldn't want to look really stupid. And, <laughs> and, and you, you don't look stupid. You're so sharp, but uh, the fourth one that I have in my list is Second Corinthians three three, where it says that you are an epistle of Christ, mm. written by the Spirit of the Living oh. God on tablets of the heart. Very cool. So that's my fourth one. But my goodness, how well did you do on that? Pretty exceptional, but I think he may have needed a little bit more than eight seconds. So I think my wife still has. Yes, she definitely beat me on that one. Okay, well, I'll let her know. She'll she'll be amazed. She'll probably go, "I beat Adam." <laughs> I'll say, "Yes, you did." Yep. Well, um, Adam, before we close things out, I I want to talk about you. So just uh, just settle in and take a sip of whatever you're drinking there, and just uh, hear my appreciation for you as I talk to you, um, talk to our listeners about you, but I want to thank you for all that you do in your role as associate director of this ministry. You balance a full-time job. I don't think listeners know all this about you. So I wanted them to know this. You, you balance a full-time job, a very active family of beautiful girls and a very, uh, active family, uh, also includes your, your very busy and, and hardworking and hard serving bride, Jana. Um, you're busy teaching responsibilities at church, uh, te- you, you know what I meant? That didn't come out right, but you have teaching <laughs> responsibilities at church. Yeah. You are about to launch and you've been doing a lot of planning, but you're about to launch into the physical renovation of your home and you're in the midst of doctoral studies. I honestly don't know how you do it because right now this ministry is all I do and I feel swamped just trying to to keep up with things, but thank you for administrating, for co-hosting and editing this podcast every other week, for faithfully writing our ministry's Saturday Facebook post, which right now, again, you're doing on the book of Mark, as you mentioned earlier. You occasionally answer questions submitted by viewers through email or in our Shalom Y'all Answers Your Questions Facebook group, and you serve as one of our board members. You've even found time to plan a June 2024 trip to Israel where you'll be our host and Bible teacher. Whew, I I probably have even missed something, but I really wanted our listeners to know all that you do in addition to being a very good friend. So thank you. 
and may the Lord bless you. Well, those are very kind words, and all I can say is, yea, but by the grace of God go I, and it is my honor. Well, a blessing indeed. Well, we sure hope that you've enjoyed this discussion about Caesarea Philippi. It was there that Jesus asked his disciples who people said that he was. Good question. Who do you say that Jesus is? That answer will determine not only how you live your life on earth, but how you can have life afterwards as well. Think about these words from Acts 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Shalom, y'all. Shalom, y'all.